Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, May 10th, and Julia Yaffe is here to tell us about Vladimir Putin's latest rant in Red Square justifying the invasion of Ukraine. And she teases a fascinating piece going up on Puck today about how World War II defined Putin's way of thinking, both as a young man and today. And later on in the show, Tina Wynn stops by to tell us about the Republican slugfest between Dr. Oz and David McCormick in Pennsylvania, and how the combative primary has opened up a lane for a third possible frontrunner. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Tuesday, everybody, because not enough people say happy Tuesday when you're just walking around on a Tuesday. So happy Tuesday. Uh, I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe, who joins me uh, really for two months now. Uh, it's been to talk about Ukraine and Russia. When was the last? I think longer. Yeah, when was like the invasion? December. December? Yeah. No, the invasion was the end of February, but they've been building up, you know, at the border since what, November? And I think all of December and January and February, you and I were like, is he? Is he not going to? Is he going to? 50-50? Yes. We did spend like three or four weeks on the podcast talking about that before the actual invasion. You're right. Um, sometimes, this is a confession, sometimes before this podcast, I struggle to think of what to ask you. Part of that is I don't worry mm-hmm. about having these conversations because we always come up with interesting angles and threads while we're talking and you're so smart on this stuff. But sometimes I feel like I'm becoming the kind of news consumer that we sometimes complain about. Like you tune all this stuff out and the attention and the high wattage focus on the invasion 
when it happened, has faded here in this country. You know, it's faded from the headlines. It's not in the national news and the A block anymore. Am I a bad journalist? What's happening over there now? Like, what, how, what do we do to keep people paying attention to this? It's not that you're a bad journalist. Uh, it's just that you're a human being. And, you know, to be honest, I have struggled with how to write about the war and what questions to ask about the war in the last three weeks myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was talking about this with my editors the other day. I'm not sure what to say anymore. You know, it's like uh, the war has entered this phase of kind of grueling, fighting for like little bits of territory, losing little bits of territory. You know, Russia will claim to have won this, like the following four villages today and, and then like loses two other tiny villages the next day. And it's still, you know, tragic. It's still bloody. It looks different. There isn't as much urban warfare. And also there's kind of less to say about it now other than mm -hmm. like waiting and watching to see how it goes. And I think with this week being the exception because Victory Day, you know, the commemoration of the end of World War II in Europe provides like a, a news peg. We also have really dramatic news happening at home too. I mean, right. we essentially got confirmation that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, that basically we're going to really dismantle women's reproductive freedom. We're um, heading into the midterm election soon. Like there's stuff happening all over the world and it's only natural for this, especially as it gets into this phase of kind of bloody Groundhog's Day. It's natural to seek out other stories and to get distracted. Julie, you mentioned May 9th. That's Victory Day in Russia. Uh, yesterday, Monday, Vladimir Putin spoke in Red Square. What was his tone like? What was his perspective on the invasion? His tone was angry and it was a short speech. I was I was expecting, you know, like a, a one hour banger like he usually gives <laughs> us. Uh, but this was a quick you know, in and out, 10 minutes, he talked about the sacrifice of the Soviet Union in World War II. And then he talked about basically why he had to invade Ukraine. And he said the reason uh, they had to invade Ukraine was because in December, Russia offered the West a security pact that would acknowledge that European security is indivisible, which is code for we wanted veto power over NATO's operations and uh -huh. veto power over European security. And he was like, instead, what happened was that the West sent weapons into Ukraine, build up uh, NATO, started taking over Ukrainian territory and was about to invade Russia's historical lands in the Donbass. And so we had to launch a preemptive strike. And he said this was the only correct decision. I mean, it was just like reiterating the conspiracy theories that uh -huh. got Russia and now the whole West into the into this war. Was this like a big moment in, in Russia? Does the president speak on this day every year and everyone tunes in more so than usual? So World War II was such a big deal to the Soviet people. Everybody's families were so affected by it. I mean, People often talk about the 27 million Soviets that died in the war, but that still doesn't, it's just like such a big number. Mm -hmm. But in the four years that the Soviet Union fought in World War II, 
the Soviet Union lost 15% of its population in four years. So many people did not come home. Every family lost not one person, not two people, but like dozens of people, Mm -hmm. right? And my family is no exception. Putin's family is no exception. It is truly this big national both trauma and source of pride. Putin has cynically capitalized on that, um, starting very early on in his reign. I mean, Victory Day wasn't always marked in the Soviet Union. It was generally like they would have these big parades for uh, the really big anniversaries, like the 20th anniversary, the 40th anniversary of 1945. But Putin started having them every year because for a long time, there was just kind of an absence of ideology. And this was one of the only things that tied contemporary Russians to each other, right? There was no communism anymore, no socialism. They weren't even all that anti-American anymore. So this was like the national fabric. And he started having these parades every year. And before he would invite foreign leaders to them because, you know, the Soviet Union didn't win the war alone. This year, obviously, nobody showed up. Nobody was invited. Nobody came. He even said in his speech that the West is trying to rewrite history to say that we didn't win World War II, that they won World War II. And it's like, okay, buddy, just chill out. Cut to Kiev, and you have Zelensky walking alone down the Hrishetik, which is the kind of the main drag in Kiev, which was totally destroyed in World War II. My grandmother, who was from Zhytomyr in uh, Western Ukraine, went to Kiev for uh, college. And when she arrived in 1947, she said she walked down the Hrishatik and it was just still in total ruin two years after the war. And you have Zelensky walking down this street and it has these anti-tank, you know, defenses out of rail ties in the background. And he's walking and he's talking to the camera and he's this young, dynamic guy. And he's talking about how it wasn't just us who won, you know, because Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. Ukraine was crucial to beating back the Nazis in World War II or Ukrainians. Uh And he says, you know, we won it with other people, with like dozens of other nations. And now we're fighting for our history, for our country. And like, and he said, and it was just such a, sick fucking burn he said you know some people are fighting for their tsars some people are fighting for weird ideas of like fascism and nationalism but we're just fighting for our homeland and it was just this very you know and he's wearing military like this military green he looks young dynamic he knows how to work a camera and then you have this like in back in moscow this totally soviet but also Mm -hmm. like neo-fascist display of military might it's just such a such a contrast, such a meaningful and significant contrast. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. On the topic of World War II, you have a piece coming out later today on Puck, I believe, about how World War II influenced Putin. The lore of Vladimir Putin is that he was influenced as a KGB officer in in Berlin who saw the fall of communism and that defined him forever. A lot of people don't talk about World War II and the influence on his psychology. Can you give us a quick tease without giving away the bag of what this article says? Because I literally cannot wait to read it. Yeah. So this is one of my pet peeves, which is like the Western obsession with Putin, the KGB agent, which, yes, is extremely influential and shaped him and shaped his thinking, yada, yada, yada. But what Americans don't catch because it's just a totally different culture is this kind of street kid culture that he comes from. And that grows out of World War II. So the street kid culture I always knew about for a long time, like my dad and his college buddies who were also born in the 50s in the Soviet Union and grew up in a similar way would help me decode it. But I'd never really connected it to World War II until I was doing research for my book. And when you lose that much of your population, and also you lose that many men, young men of marrying age, of baby making age, you know, there were places in Russia after the war or in the Soviet Union after the war where the female to male ratio was 19 to one after the war. And, you know, the one woman with the husband who came home would loan him out to the other women because they wanted to have babies. So this era was called Bezatsovshina, which means the era of no fathers, because so many, there were so many children born to single mothers. There were so many orphans. There were so many children like Putin who did have fathers who came home from the war, but came home radically changed and withdrawn and traumatized. His father was nearly killed fighting for Leningrad. He was part of the NKVD troops. NKVD was the predecessor to the KGB. Gotcha. Anyway, and he's like, he basically grew up without much of a, you know, father figure. And he, like most men of that generation, grew up in the streets. Like they were, you know, kids from the projects. He was in a very poor area and he lived by the code of the street. A lot of those men, well, a lot of those boys, when they grew up, ended up in the penal system, bringing that like language with them. It's a whole separate language, a whole separate culture, a whole different honor code. And Putin very much talks like that still, behaves like that still. And men of that generation, immediately understand it. And they're like, oh, he's, you know, putting this guy down in this very specific way, because according to this code, you got to answer in this kind, like in this way. Oh, when he says this, he means that. And that is all because, you know, their moms were working, their dads were either drinking or just like dead or non-existent. And they were raised by the streets. And it was one of the reasons that Putin said himself that he went and like learned judo was because He wanted to be king of this crew, his yard, 
And uh, he was small and scrawny. And so he needed some, you know, tricks up his sleeve to rule the other boys. Wow. Yeah. The Russian baby boomer man. I'm always blown away by the reporters on this podcast. Like I always learn something, but I literally had no idea about this era or that uh, culture. So thank you for enlightening me. And thank you as always for coming on the pod. We will talk to you next week, I believe. And I promise not to be as cynical and be more well-informed about what's happening over there. But thank you for- You're doing, you're doing amazing, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for helping us through it. All right, thanks, Julia. Thanks, Peter. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Tina Wynn on her beat right now. Thanks, Peter. Let's go back to the Granite State real quick to revisit my favorite race, David McCormick, hedge fund gajillionaire versus Dr. Mehmet Oz, other gajillionaire, but a celebrity. We're about like a week out from that election finally taking place. And I have to admit, I consider this race a bellwether for the future of the Republican Party. Like in Ohio, you had a whole bunch of populists kind of beating each other up with all of their baggage. In Arizona, you have a bunch of conspiracy theorists trying to make crazy allegations. But in Pennsylvania, you have these two candidates who come in like fairly controlled for factors like wealth, connections to Mar-a-Lago world. So right now you're just sort of seeing them on the basis of their own political platforms and of their own characters. It's going to be a signal of what can win in Republican primaries these days, which makes the new update rather interesting. So McCormick and Oz are right now flooding the airwaves in Pennsylvania with all sorts of negative ads against each other. Uh, Oz who's backed by Trump right now, is saying that McCormick's not fully populist, that he's kind of a fake and a phony who's hired a lot of Trump people. Uh, McCormick is hitting Oz back on uh, his previous record that indicates that he's a lot more liberal than his current positions let on. Like, he supported various types of abortion. He also expressed empathy towards trans children, which is a big no-no in the Republican Party these days. But... The fact that these two wealthy outsiders are currently beating each other up on the airwaves has somehow created a lane for Kathy Barnett, who's a third candidate, to slip through. Now, uh, she's more known as a Fox News figure who's written a couple of books, recently revealed during a debate that she was the product of a pregnancy caused by rape, which gave her a massive boost in at least name recognition among Republicans. And she also just got endorsed by Joni Ernst, who's a female senator from Iowa. So her stock has actually been rising in the polls. And there is a universe where Oz and McCormick are so negative against each other that they turn off a large section of Pennsylvania voters, cancel each other out. Kathy Barnett rushes through and wins because she is not the candidate with money. She's actually not from Pennsylvania, but she has a more populist credential than the rest of the candidates do. Now, one could say there are, I would like 40, 30 other Senate races and Senate primaries they could be paying attention to. I agree, but there's something very particular about this race. I view it as like a scientific experiment to see what sort of platform and message can win in the Republican Party these days, uh, especially with candidates who were not necessarily Republican populist stalwarts, 
who are now trying to embrace this world. David McCormick comes from a super traditional Republican background with populist nods. Oz comes in, he is more liberal, a little bit softer on culture war issues, who has taken a hard turn into MAGA territory and has Trump's endorsement, but it's not necessarily sure whether being endorsed by Trump can make voters look past all of those past MAGA sins, as it were. But here's a new factor that I think puck readers should be paying attention to. You can have a qualified guy with a deep history and MAGA nods. You can have a celebrity who is trying to embrace a MAGA platform and has gotten Trump's endorsement. Or you can have a third candidate who has neither money nor stature nor Trump's endorsement, but has the spirit of the MAGA populist, anti-elitist movement. Will voters go for these other two candidates or will they go for someone who's clearly super unqualified but has the MAGA spirit and embodies it the most authentically? That's sort of why I see this race as one of the most important ones in the party, not just because, ooh, who's going to be the senator from Pennsylvania? It's who in the swing state will be senator? What kind of Republican will Pennsylvania choose to represent them in the United States Senate? That's a huge sign for where the party is going. And so if I were you, I would definitely keep refreshing the election return page on Tuesday night. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.